Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I am Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoy today's show, please subscribe on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Our guest today is Holly Fretwell, who is the Director of Outreach and a Research Fellow at the Property and Environmental Research Center, commonly known as PERC. Did I get that right? Uh, Property and Environment Research Center. Property and Environment. Okay. All right. PERC used to be something else, I believe. It was like the Political Economy Research Center or something like that. Got it exactly. Yes. Okay. All right. So I, I haven't quite I haven't quite updated, even though I think this switchover happened decades ago. But it, it did. But, but every now and then, just I just say, so you know, I will come out with political economy research center, and people will look at me like I am crazy and say, "Where did that come from?" Okay. I don't know. <laughs> Certainly, the new name is apt in that Perk focuses on environmental issues, and that's great because we are doing this podcast on or about Earth Day. So we wanted to have someone on to talk about those issues because this is an area where the popular view seems to be that there is an inherent conflict between markets and the environment. And so if you want to protect the environment and favor conservation and clean air and water and all that, then you can't be for limited government. And if you are for limited government, Well, then you just got to kind of not care about environmental stuff. And Perk, I think, has done a lot of interesting work on, you know, how those two things might not be so uh, much in conflict as we as we think. You are right that uh, many people think that free market environmentalism is a bit of an oxymoron. And at PERC, uh, we believe the two go very well together. And we have spent nearly 40 years demonstrating how well they actually do go together. One of the reasons that we started was back in 1980, a number of economists and a political economy professor at Montana State University got together and they said, why are we having so many environmental problems? Every time we have environmental problems, we turn to the government and we think they're going to solve those problems for us. But apparently they're not doing a very good job. And so the first chapter, if you will, of PERC, we actually looked at what government was doing to try to enhance environmental quality and to get a better understanding of why the government was not doing a very good job in enhancing our environmental quality and in stewarding our own lands, the federal lands, and in enhancing conservation. And what we found out is if you follow the incentives, you will find that people in government and in our federal bureaucracies that are working on environmental policy uh, follow incentives and they lead us to exactly where we are, if you will, um, in that they have incentives oftentimes to increase budgets and to seek what special interests are looking for rather than to actually look um, out for our best environmental quality and conservation. So I think that probably the best way to get a sense of what free market environmentalism might look like is to just talk about a number of different specific issues and you know what the critique of the government regulatory approach might be and then also what the alternatives might be from a more market-based approach. So you mentioned federal lands. That might be a good area to start because starting way back, I believe it was Teddy Roosevelt. Since then, there's been a tradition of creating wildlife preserves or nature preserves, others having lands that are deemed off limits to development more or less, and that can be managed by federal agencies or in some cases, state 
agencies. So what is wrong with that as a method of preserving nature and uh, keeping, you know, grubby capitalists away? Well, if we actually look at our federal lands, our federal lands cover nearly 50% of the Western United States, and they are not cared for in the way that most people would like to see them cared for. When we go through our national parks, um, we oftentimes have sewer systems that are not functioning well, that haven't been repaired in 50 plus years. We have roads that are full of potholes. We have on our national forest, we have millions of acres of forest land that are subject to catastrophic wildfire. They are not in a natural state um, anymore because of the management that we've had over the years, everything from uh, harvesting too much timber in certain areas to not harvesting any timber whatsoever. And the climate certainly has a, a role in that as well. But but nonetheless, what we come up with is these, these landscapes that are not being well managed, but that were put under the care of the federal government. At the same time, we continue to see people wanting more and more land uh, to be acquired by the federal government. Uh, and we're expanding that landscape without expanding the ability to manage manage that land. Part of it comes from a budgeting problem. We simply don't have the resources that our public land managers would need to do a good job caring for the landscape. And part of it comes from the incentives for those land managers in being able to actually care for those lands. So if we look at Yellowstone National Park, for example, as a park that's just 90 miles from us that we um, all love here in Bozeman, Montana, about 15 years ago, I should take that back, a little over 20 years ago, we were going through Yellowstone National Park and we were talking with one of the gentlemen that worked in the park. He was the comptroller or the accountant at the time. And we were asking him why the park wasn't in better care and why some of the, uh, the uh, one campground that we had passed was actually closed. And he said, well, we actually don't have the resources to care for that campground right now because we do not have a, a large enough budget. But when we started to really dig deep with this gentleman, he said, well, actually what happens here is is they do charge for you to stay in that campground. And we make something like $76,000 each year from that campground. But all that money goes back into the U.S. General Treasury. And then we're reallocated money um, in our budget to manage the park. And what happens is we, we need to put those resources into other places. At the end of the day, what the cost of the management of that campground was actually less than the total revenues that were generated. I actually think I did not get that number right. But uh, nonetheless, the, the cost of, of managing that, that campground was something less than the revenues that were generated, yet they were closing the campground, number one, because they needed to use those resources somewhere else. But number two, it was also a really good ploy to tell Congress that we need more money in this park because it was a very popular campground. But the bottom line comes down to the park didn't have a bottom line like most businesses do. That is that they, if they were generating revenues in one place, they weren't able to keep those revenues. They had to go back to the general treasury. So a couple of years after that, in 1996, uh, one of the efforts that PERC actually put forth and, and something that was passed was to say, well, you know, these recreation fees actually need to stay within the parks so that the park managers can use them and put them back on the ground where they see the needs are greatest in each individual park. And that at the time was called the uh, fee recreation recreation demonstration program. It is now FREA, the Federal Land Recreation and Enhancement Act. And now it goes across all of our four federal land agencies, the National Park Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Forest Service, and National Fish and Wildlife Service, all can keep 
revenues that are collected in many of their units, um, up to 80% of those revenues, or at least 80% of those revenues, and those revenues go back on the ground to that unit. That has been a huge step in enhancing the management of our parks. Um, and you, as you think about sort of what is free market environmentalism, that this, these are still lands that are owned by the federal government, but now we have more private-like mechanisms that are existing in the parks, and we are creating better incentives for our land managers to manage on the ground and for those things that they think are of most need to be taken care of. And I don't want to suggest that our federal land managers don't care for the lands and, and don't want to do the best possible job they can to steward those landscapes because every single one of them that I have met most certainly does. The reason they're there is because they really do care about the lands and want to make sure they are well cared for. The problem is the bureaucracy and the rules that they have to abide by sometimes are so cumbersome that they really have their hands tied behind their back and often simply can't do a good job just based on those rules and regulations. So now let's turn to topic of clean air. So this is something, you know, there used to be, particularly in parts of California, other places, really big problems with smog. You have other factories, other manufacturers putting all sorts of bad stuff into the air. And it seems like this is something where you need some sort of uh, heavy-handed government role to deal with this problem because the market itself is not only not going to solve it, but it's the one that's generating the problem in the first place through industry. So what what would be the free market environmental perspective on you know how do you how do you get clean air uh, clean air is definitely one that's a little difficult for a, a total free market solution so I'm going to back up just a little bit and say when we're talking about free market environmentalism at its sort of finest I would say it's basically unregulated trade that is resulting in good environmental outcomes we're allowing people to trade and at the end of the day we're getting enhanced stewardship enhanced conservation and good environmental quality and one of the things that free market environmentalism is, is really based on is markets that function well. And for markets to function well, we need clear ownership rights on, of resources. And those ownership rights needs to include both we know what it is that we own, we can define what, we, what it is, um, we can exclude others from using our resource or allow them to use our resource as we wish, but we actually own it and we can decide who gets to use it and who doesn't get to use it, that it is tradable and that we're liable for any damage done. So if I'm using my resource, I, let's, let's say my resource um, is, a, is a car, when I'm driving around in my car, I can't go just driving and hitting people willy-nilly uh, because I'd be harming other people. So there's certain, certain rules and regulations that go along with that, that uh, those characteristics, if you will, of ownership rights or what we call property rights here at PERC. And one of the difficult ones with air is that it is hard to define exactly who owns the air. And it is also hard to define who is essentially polluting the air sometimes. And so when we think of environmental problems, we can actually think of them as sort of a, a problem of, of allocation, right? How are we allocating the use of different resources? And if air is the resource that we're looking at, how are we allocating the use of the air? Because I want to have clean air to breathe. And I also want to drive my car around. But when I drive my car around, it is actually kind of polluting the air. So there are always going to be some trade-offs that exist there. I also want to um, drink beer on an iPhone, do other things that as in the, that production process is going to be um, putting some sort of emissions in the air. So we have this allocation problem. Who gets to decide whether I get to use the air for clean air or somebody else gets to use the air to produce a product that is actually emitting some maybe particulates into the air or something of that sort. And free market environmentalism would say, well, we want to make sure we have 
markets that are helping us do this because that way we're going to get the most cooperative, lowest cost solutions. And when we're looking at the idea of air again, it's hard to define exactly who owns that air. So one of the ways that free market environmentalists have worked on thinking about cleaner air is to say, well, actually, if we look in history, we've seen that communities actually like clean air, society likes clean air. And over time, long before the Clean Air Act, we actually saw reductions in particulates in our air just based on the this social demand and social desire for that. And, and communities on their own were taking care of some of these problems. Another way that was dealt with is just through the, the common law. If you were polluted on under our system of, of law, we actually do have the right to be free of, of pollutants, at least to some extreme. And there are a number of cases, even back in the 1800s, where some firms were polluting on somebody else and they took it to court. And the court said, no, you have the right to, to not be harmed upon by others' actions. And therefore, we are going to tell this industry that they can no longer produce until they clean up their act and they're going to have to pay you compensation. So the common law was another way that we've actually seen clean air uh, be provided for. But I would say that the third way, and probably the, the more contemporary way that people would think about it, is in what we did when we looked at... Um, the, the idea of cap and trade on sulfur dioxide and nitrous oxide. And we have electric utilities that uh, produce emissions um, of both sulfur um, dioxide and nitrous oxide. And we wanted to regulate the amount of that that was going into the air because we knew it was bad for us. I say we as sort of society in general, somebody's um, in, in governance decided we wanted to do this. And others said, well, that's going to be really costly if we just regulate it. There's a better way to do it. And that way might actually be to allow for some trades to take place. And what we came up with was a trading scheme. And this is what I would call market-based instead of free market environmentalism, because the market itself didn't originally exist. Government actually came in and created this market for the right to pollute, if you will, and basically said, we're going to regulate how much emission can come out of these different electric utilities. And we're going to give each electric utility, based on the amount that we're allowing to go out in total, uh, a right to pollute a certain amount. And then we're going to allow them to trade those rights to pollute because we understand that some utilities have a lower cost of reducing emissions than others do. And when this actually came forth in the late 1990s, we were able to see a reduction in pollutants at a much, much lower cost than even was expected under the trading scheme. And I would say that cap and trade program worked extremely well until the Environmental Protection Agency decided they were going to change the values of those pollution permits. Keeping the story simple, we'll just say changing the values, but there was banking and other things that could go on and they changed the, num the number of permits that were allowed and, and the value of those. And as a result of that, the market crashed. And so I would say the, the moral of that story is what government giveth, government can take it away. But nonetheless, while the cap and trade program was in effect, it was a, a very successful program of reducing emissions in the atmosphere at a very low cost. Certainly not perfect not free market entirely, but market-based. And so I say that as a free market environmentalist, that we understand that there are shortcomings in the marketplace. And when we see those shortcomings, we look to the characteristics of ownership rights and property rights and try to figure out what the lowest cost solution might be and move from there. And so there's sort of this spectrum of free market environmentalism that goes from sort of that ideological, really using the markets, markets functioning perfectly well, to a point where we might actually need some government intervention and government regulation. I want to follow up on something that you mentioned, uh, which is you're talking about how it might in these different systems, people are given a kind of limited right to pollute, right? 
Yep. And so this is something that I'm sure raises the hackles of certain people. I think, you know, some folks, the initial thing is, well, pollution is bad, so shouldn't be giving people a right to pollute. Uh, you should just say no pollution, right? People should not be able to pollute. But of course, the problem with that is that there are many things that we do that are very beneficial that require pollution, right? There's trade-offs and costs, everything. An extreme example, perhaps, is a couple of years ago, a few years back, I was living in Indiana and uh, there was a storm or something and there was a big blackout in town or lost power. And the hospital, of course, continued to have power because they had diesel generators that they could, right? So obviously that diesel generators, there's pollution, other fumes and emissions coming from that. At the same time, you know, I think we would probably say, that it is very valuable to keep a hospital running. You know, lives can be saved by that. I think one of the interesting and perhaps counterintuitive ideas that comes from an economic approach to these issues is that actually the optimal amount of pollution is not zero. Correct. Right. There's some degree of pollution where the costs of getting rid of it are so high that we wouldn't want to pay that. And so you try, you know, it's just a matter of trying to find what is the optimal level and how do you how do you achieve that most efficiently getting down to it you realize that, the, that this episode is going to be called the case for pollution you re- realize that right <laughs> <laughs> you just titled it the case All for right, pollution hey, hey. Well, and you're absolutely right that that it, it doesn't it, it's really not possible in our our current day to have zero pollution just as human beings in in how we live and in what our bodily functions are you know perhaps one day we will be able to take all that waste and turn it into a resource and that would be a wonderful thing and that would be a very free market environmental approach to have these wonderful environmental entrepreneurs or what we call envirepreneurs at per create new ways to use waste and then turn it into resources and therefore it's valuable and so they can make a profit doing it and that is one way that Eventually, at some point in, in history, probably not in my lifetime, but, but hopefully um, some point and hopefully within my lifetime, we can actually say we have a use for all this waste and therefore it's no longer a waste. It's actually a resource. And then we could say that no pollution would be okay. But at this point, it's just it's not possible. I want to talk about a couple more specific issues, but I was thinking... Um... I'm going to tell a little embarrassing story about myself. When I was in law school and I took property law, they had us read a uh, an article, very famous article that I think kind of underlies many of these sorts of environmental issues. is an essay called The Tragedy of the Commons by uh, Garrett Hardin, I believe was his name. Yep. And... The central image was you have a field that nobody owns where people are grazing their cattle. And because nobody owns it, there's no incentive to try and, you know, there's a certain number of cattle that can be sustainably grazed on this field. If you have too many cattle, they're going to eat all the grass and it'll die and no one will have any grass anymore. But since no one owns it and there's so there's no one to properly manage it, the incentive of each individual cattle owner is we've got to have our cattle eat as much grass as possible because if we don't, other people are going to eat all the grass and we still won't have any. It's very important. Actually, the essay itself, if you read it, goes in some darker places, starts talking about you know population control and other things. It was I think it was from the 70s. I read this essay and I went to my law professor, a very earnest student, and I said... Um, you know, uh, Professor, are economists evil? Because I read this essay and, uh, you know, it seemed like some of the stuff that was the conclusions were pretty horrible. And the professor pointed out that 
Actually, uh, the author of this essay is not an economist. (laughs) And we're not really evil, are we? (laughs) We're not. No more than anyone else. I'll put it that way. That's right. The whole idea of the tragedy of the commons, though, can, can help us think more about sort of the, the private versus the, the federal rights and, and federal land ownership. Because if we were, you know, if, if in this big field we had actual private rights that existed out there, then each individual is putting their cattle on their own right. If they can create, you know, if they have good, clear ownership or property rights, and they can fence in their piece of, of land and put their cattle out. And, and most Farmers, most ranchers, as we see today, are only going to put enough, enough cattle out there that they can actually sustain on that landscape because they rely on that year after year after year and want to make sure that they have enough forage out there for their cattle year after year after year. And then if we look at that in comparison and say, well, actually out here in the West, we have these ranchers that have private allocations um, and they take pretty good care of that private allocation. And they oftentimes have a federal allocation that is adjacent to that that they also use. Now on the federal allocation, and this is federal land oftentimes Bureau of Land Management land or uh, National Forest Service land, but it is leased back to these various different ranchers. And on that federal allocation, the federal government or these different agencies get to determine exactly how that land is used in the sense of how many head of cattle can go out there at what times of year and so forth. And so it's very regulated. And what we find is that for the federal lands now, it's, it's, what, what I call single use, that the, if you want to graze that land, if you want to use that allocation, you have to put cattle on it. Um, you are not allowed to not put cattle on it for um, for any length of time. There's a few years that you can leave it fallow, but other, otherwise you will lose your lease if you don't put some sort of livestock out there on it. And that livestock can't be a turtle or um, some other endangered species that you think might be um, using this habitat. It needs to be livestock, um, cattle or sheep. Um, there's a few other things, horses that will fit in there. And if you are somebody that says, you know what, I'd really like to see this land not used for cattle grazing. I don't think cattle grazing is, is beneficial on the landscape. Rather than being able to go up to that rancher and say, hey, let's make a deal, which you could for the, the private land portion of it, you could say, you know, there are some endangered tortoise on your land and I would really like to, to see them protected a little bit more. There's some great habitat out there. Um, and let's just say they're not really endangered under the Endangered Species Act. This is just an animal that I personally like as a neighbor. And I'd love to compensate you to help me take better care of these. And now we can make a deal, right? And that's the private to private situation. That would be the free market environmentalism story. And we do see those types of things happening all the time. Hit on the federal portion of this land, and I say, well, you know, I I see that that tortoise is going on over on your federal allocation. Let's see if we can adjust that federal allocation to provide better habitat for this tortoise as well. And suddenly the the rancher's going to say, nope, we have to have cattle out there because otherwise I'm likely to lose my right on using that, that allocation. And so as the tortoise lover, if I really want to protect that tortoise, I can't negotiate with the individual, I have to go to the federal level and lobby government in order to eliminate or reduce the allocation on this rancher's federal allocation that uh, the rancher is using. So suddenly we've gone from this cooperative negotiation, private to private, to this conflicting winner-takes-all type solution on the federal landscape. And that really is problematic. And it's not just with grazing, it's also if we're cutting timber on our federal lands. If somebody says, you know, actually I'd like to, you know, see some of that land used for trails or for some other type of habitat or something else. And I see that there's this timber sale going on. If it's federal land, the uh, Forest Service can only accept bids for harvesting timber. They cannot accept bids for 
not harvesting timber. Um, and the same thing holds true if we're looking at mineral leases. If I'm going to bid on a mineral lease, I have to have the intention of removing that mineral from the landscape. Otherwise, the government, um, the federal agency is actually prohibited from accepting my bid. So the only way that I can change those types of uses and the allocation of those uses is by using the political system and lobbying government rather than in the private sector where I can actually say, you know, I would really like to negotiate with you and make a deal. And let me tell you one more story here because something really cool just happened here in Bozeman, Montana on state lands. So we have state lands that are required to generate revenues. And just outside of Bozeman in a view shed that we actually can see from our office here, there was a timber sale going on. And the state of Montana has this very unique law that says that they can actually allow for conservation leases. And when the timber sale went up, there was a group of, of locals just up in arms because they did not want to see this timber harvested. They didn't want it to be part of the view shed. Uh, there's also some wonderful trails up there that many of us use. And they said, we really don't want to see all this timber cut. And so they got together and raised money and bid on the timber sale and won. So this conservation group actually won the timber sale and no timber will be cut on that land for 25 years. They have a 25-year conservation license. And that's pretty cool. That does not happen often. That's the first time it's ever happened in the state of Montana on the full allocation. And that has been a law for 20 years, I think now. Not possible to happen on the federal lands, but maybe something that we can demonstrate a proof of concept on. Now, one shortcoming of that particular story that still exists is it's still an all or nothing deal. We, we bid for cutting all the timber or we bid for cutting none of the timber and we don't allow that negotiation in between when the optimal amount of timber to be cut is probably somewhere in between, right? We could probably cut a little bit of that timber, create really cool trails, maintain those really cool trails, reduce the risk of fire and generate revenues for the state all at the same time. But because of these restrictive regulations that we have and laws that we have, that's not a possibility. But what we've done here in Montana is a great first step and a wonderful example of being able to change some of those uses from our traditional uses to those uses that we actually seem to have higher value for today. I want to shift gears a little bit and ask a broader question. You know, with all the hype about the Green New Deal and just climate change and environmental concerns in general, if you're somebody who's not an environmental scientist and you're you're not up to the minute because it's part of your daily job, how do you get a sense of how things are progressing or getting worse? And, you know, what are the metrics for that? And let's just kind of take a, an arbitrary date of, let's say, 1970. If you look back to 1970, by whatever standard, cleaner air, cleaner water, whatever metric you want to use, how could somebody who's just sort of the, you know, the common person on the street get a sense of where we are, where we've been and and what the direction really is for, you know, are things getting better or worse? That's a fabulous question because I think you'd ask most people and they would probably say it's getting worse when in fact, when you look at the data, it's getting better and it's getting a lot better and maybe not literally everywhere, but on average across the globe, things are getting better. The environment is getting cleaner. We're enhancing our conservation. One place to look is to Bjorn Lomberg. He is the author of The Skeptical Environmentalist and also has a webpage, The Copenhagen Consensus. And he is a statistician that his book was probably put out about 10 or 15 years ago. And he was looking at what was going on with the environment with the expectation that he was going to demonstrate that things were getting worse. And he surprised himself by demonstrating that things were getting better. And his book is huge. So I, I wouldn't advise reading that as a, as a simple answer. But there is lots of evidence out on, on the web now that, that 
demonstrate some of the, the trends that he was able to share with us. It's a fabulous book and it's a fabulous story that we really are better off. And it goes way back um, into the early 1900s in our developed world. One of the things that we do want to be conscientious of is that when we're looking at our developing world, oftentimes they are starting with very little. And as they start to develop, they are likely to see increased pollutants as they get wealthier up until some point. And then we actually see those pollutants start going down. If you can imagine our industrial revolution, or think about China right now and how as they're industrializing and things seem to be very polluting um, lots and and it's very very dirty, but as people get wealthier, they start to demand more environmental quality. And as a result of that, we start to see an increase in that environmental quality. Um, So again, on on a global scale, things are definitely getting better, but there are certainly some areas where we're likely to see things getting a little bit worse before they get better. What do you think has been the the secret to the success? Uh, You know, you've talked about it, that you're approach isn't necessarily free market, but it's market-based. So who deserves the credit here? Is it, you know, is it the environmentally conscious consumers making demands? Is it the regulations? Is it companies with innovation? Who deserves the blame, you think, for the improvement? Um, well, well, for starters, I would say we, we definitely are free, free market environmentalists here at PERC. We, we look first to the marketplace to try to solve the problems, but we do understand that markets aren't perfect. And our key goal is to enhance conservation and environmental quality. So when markets aren't functioning well, um, which we think is the, the best place in the first place to start. And when they're not functioning well, we will look to other areas. But markets function really well when we have good information and when we have secure property rights. So in my mind, when we're looking at this enhanced environmental quality, it can comes right back to really secure ownership rights and property rights that enable people to know what's theirs and encourage them to take better care of what they own. Because as individuals, we do tend to take better care of those things that we actually own and we have rights over because we're the ones that are going to benefit from that at the end of the day. If we don't take good care of our own resources, whether it's land, a, um, you know, a jacket or a bicycle or a car, it's worth less at the end of the day. And we're the ones that end up paying that difference, right? If we're increasing the value of our car, we go to sell our car, we get more from it. Um, if we beat up our car and, and we go to sell it, then we're going to get less from it. And we realize those incentives very, very, very directly. And I think that is one of the reasons that we see this increased environmental quality. And there are a number of authors out there that have demonstrated that as we have increased our property rights and the security of those property rights, we've also seen an increase in development. And as we increase our development, again, at first we might see a little increase in environmental degradation, but then we certainly see it falling down. And that's where we really are seeing the most of the developed world today is we've hit this point where we care about the environment, we can afford to care about the environment, and we have some good technologies that are helping us do a better job caring for the environment. So I bring it back to that and say it's really important for us to understand that that is where a lot of this is actually stemming from. And we come up with these not only cooperative solutions that I was talking about with, you know, allowing for property rights and trade, but sustainable solutions. If it's economically viable, it's sustainable. Uh, If it's not economically viable, it's really not sustainable. And when we look to political environmentalism or our government to, to own and manage the environment as, as we, we started this, government does not do a good job. It causes a lot of conflict because now when we're trying to allocate these resources, one person gets it and the other person doesn't. So we have a winner-take-all solution instead of allowing for that compromise. And it's assuming that the government knows what is best um, or somebody within governance knows what is best and has all the information about 
all the different values that we in society have, uh, when that simply is, is not the case, they are definitely influenced by a lot of lobbying and special interest groups. And so those tend to be the groups that win um, over the other individuals, which are oftentimes the average citizen. Just a moment ago, you mentioned um, technologies, and every so often I annoy Josiah by sending him some article I've read about some crazy new idea, some technology, and I'll ask him, say, is, is this real or not? Is there any technologies out there that are, you know, that are being developed that you're aware of, maybe they're already on the market, that you're excited about that you know, would really move the needle, say, on climate change or uh, just environmental improvement? I think there's a ton of new technologies that are coming out there. And one of them is just coming from, from our iPhone and the data that our iPhone can collect for us and how people are, are making use of that. So suddenly we have people all across the country that are counting birds on their phones and all that data has been collected in one point and we're able to look at some of the trends of those bird populations and changes in those bird populations. We can use that data then to determine where we have some problem areas and where things are working uh, pretty well. We can track other animals in, in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem where I live. We have a, a lot of grizzly bears. Uh, the population of grizzly bears has expanded tremendously. Uh, one of the concerns in the future is, uh, for me in particular, but many people around me, is that grizzly bears are invading my trail space and I don't particularly want to run into a grizzly bear as much as I want them as part of the wildlife. I don't particularly want to run into one. But one of the things that we can do is, is we have the technology to be able to tag bears so that we know where they are. Now, you could think of negatives that could go along with that as well as positives. But in my mind, the positive is um, if I know where that bear is, then I can avoid that bear. And, and that's going to reduce the conflict between humans and wildlife. Um, now, people that want to see the bear, it might actually increase that conflict. So I can see that there, there, there could be some, some negative effects there as well. But I think there's just tons of different technologies. And, and again, I come back to my, my envirepreneurs, right? Uh, these environmental entrepreneurs that are going out there seeking new technologies to enhance environmental quality because as, as individuals in a, in a wealthy country, we demand environmental quality. We want more of it and we're willing to pay for more of it and we're willing to pay for things that um, are producing less environmental pollutants or are helping us increase our environmental quality or conservation or, or stewardship. And there's a number of different technologies coming out. I was just reading uh, one the other day. I don't know enough about it to, to be able to tell you more, but it was an individual that was actually turning air into water by, by creating condensation. Um, wow, right? I mean, there's some cool stuff that uh, we could actually think of doing. How about, how about uh, you know, taking our human waste and turning it into a resource? Um, it, we're, we're not there yet, but we have been able that's, to take- That's crazy. That's crazy talk. <laughs> but here's one we have taken, I didn't say what kind of human waste, right? We can take our human waste in the sense of garbage and our landfills and we're turning the method that's coming out of those landfills into energy. That's pretty cool, right? One of my uh, students a couple of years ago actually decided he'd done a paper on, on that, that whole idea of turning landfill waste into methane. And he said, pretty soon we're going to be wanting more garbage and not less garbage because we're going to be creating all this great energy from it. Those are all some pretty cool things that are, are coming out of technology. And as long as we allow that technology to develop and, and we protect individuals' property rights that are developing that technology, we're going to innovate more and um, just see more great things in the future. Okay, so uh, to close, we often like to ask our guests what their favorite movie is related to whatever the topic of the conversation is. So do you have a favorite movie about nature? You know, <laughs> I don't know that I have a favorite movie about nature, but there are so many movies out there that I despise because almost every movie that has to do with the environment has a group of individuals 
that are these wonderful, loving people that um, are just do-gooders and care for each other and they can do no wrong and they're caring for the environment. And then there is some capitalist firm out there that's destroying the environment um, and they're terrible. And it's the same story over and over and over again. And some of the movies are actually enjoyable and entertaining to watch, but the story is getting a bit old. How about let's tell the story about the envirepreneur who's doing this amazing thing to protect the environment and making a profit doing so. So here we have this environment envirepreneur that is doing good and doing well, right? And all for the environment. So I, I will say uh, you sparked my interest. And this is not, maybe it's a little tangential. Maybe you love this movie. I don't know. But I remember uh, when it came out, I went to see Wally, the old uh, <laughs> animated movie. I hated that movie because you know, and that movie is like this robot. And I guess like the idea is uh, humanity, like there was just too much garbage. And so they abandoned earth and everyone was sitting around and, and fat. And the, there was this lovable little, little robot that was cleaning up everything and d- didn't really make any sense from a economic perspective. And I thought it was kind of dumb. So I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> That, that that fits well with it within the story. I mean, I, like I say, I have yet to see the movie that really tells a great story about some entrepreneurial individual that's doing wonderful things for the environment. Maybe maybe it's too too much of a of a cozy, happy story that they're doing these great things for the environment and it's actually working and they're making money doing it. Um, right. So so actually, those are the type of little stories and, and videos that we're producing at Perk now, just to satisfy me. All right. Well, if we have any listeners who are Hollywood screenwriters and they're looking for their next idea, you know, uh, maybe you want to do something on that theme. There you go. Uh, And and I'd be happy to work with somebody on it. All right. Good. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Holly, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks you guys so much. Happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. (laughs) And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe on iTunes, Sketcher. (laughs) Do it again. (laughs) 